Jill, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great as well. Thanks so much. Excited to be chatting with you on this Monday afternoon. Same here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Jill and I have gotten to know one another through our collective work in the cannabis industry and have gotten to become much more than business associates, but also friends over time, uh, also both living in Denver and given some of Jill's interest in both cannabis and holistic medicine, thought she'd be a great person to join, uh, join me on the podcast. And so with that, Jill, maybe it'd be great if you could give the listeners a little bit of background on your, your bio and how you ended up starting Willow Industries, and then we can go from there. Absolutely. So I come from the food and beverage industry. I am a registered dietitian. I have a master's in food science and nutrition. And before I went down the awesome, exciting road of nutrition, I worked in the entertainment industry for about five years in Los Angeles. But in the in the nutrition world, I started a cold pressed juice company in Santa Barbara, which I ran for a few years and then moved that business to Denver. We were the first cold pressed juice company here in Denver, Colorado. We had roving retail. So we had a juice truck that drove around and sold a bunch of our juices. We had a direct to consumer business with juice cleanses. And then we also sold our juices on the grocery store shelves. And, you know, I exited that company and started a beverage distribution business in Denver. We launched the first alcoholic kombucha here in the state in Whole Foods and many other grocers. I sold that business because, you know, I was driving a 15 foot truck around town and I really didn't see that as my future. But uh, as I started to move out of that business and, and looking at my next step, one of my great experiences from my juice business was really understanding kill steps and pasteurization methods and consumer safety. And so when I started looking at cannabis, which now is about seven years ago, early legalization for the state, I was realizing that you know a lot of what was happening here with cultivations is that they were required to test for contaminants, but there was no solution if they were presented with contamination. So one day I had this very clear vision to design and develop a kill step for the cannabis industry. And that is what we have done here at Willow. You know, six and a half years later, we are, um, we're all over the country and an international market and excited about the future growth. And since I think about the businesses that you started, you clearly have a great deal of prescience, right? Getting into cold pressed juices in the early 2010s and then into alcoholic kombucha and then into cannabis in 2015. And so I'm curious, what do you attribute your ability to recognize sectors that are poised for significant growth? That's a great question. You know, I've I I've always been able to kind of see the future of these industries. I don't know if it's, you know, something that I developed over time, but I was one of the first cold pressed juice companies in Santa Barbara in Southern California, for that matter, and definitely the first uh, beverage distributor working with alcoholic kombucha. But I, I just saw trends early on, and I just saw this innate need for products and services that were really going to accelerate a specific industry. And with Willow, I mean, from the very beginning, I always believed consumer safety was going to triumph, you know, where this industry headed. And so I was like, I have to find a solution. So I've kind of always been the solution oriented entrepreneur. 
And so taking a step back before your entrepreneurial days, you mentioned coming out of college from undergrad that you initially got into the media and entertainment industry. And so I'd love to hear what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I was very intrigued by the entertainment industry. I mean, I lived in LA, I grew up in LA. And so was part of it, you know, most of my formative years, my dad worked in television stations, his adult, his whole career. So I was always part of the entertainment world. And I was like, well, clearly that's, you know, where I will head. I had originally wanted to be a professional singer. But, you know, it didn't really work out for me. So I was like, listen, I'll just go and be on the business side of the entertainment industry. But I mean, this is like early 2000s and all the Me Too stories that you hear today. I mean, that type of behavior was super prolific in that time. But I mean, it was really exciting to be part of the entertainment industry. This was way before social media. This is way before, you know, the internet had kind of like taken over what entertainment looks like today. So it was like true, you know, movie stars and films. And it was just this like, fun, exciting world to be part of. So I worked for a talent agent and then I worked for a talent manager. We represented, you know, some of the biggest stars out there today. And then I worked for a movie producer, just kind of like hoping to find my place and home in the industry. And it, I, I don't know, it was kind of like a round peg in a square hole. It, it was hard for me. And you talk about the, the Me Too culture that was pervasive at that time. And I'm curious, what do you attribute the ability of that culture to be so widespread at the time too? And do you think that over the last few years that the media and entertainment industry has really changed? I think it was so widespread because no one was saying anything. I mean, the things that were said to me that I was part of, that I saw, it was because this was something that was expected. It was customary you know, no one was saying otherwise. It was like, well, yeah, this shit happens in the entertainment industry. So just deal with it, Mm -hmm. especially if you want to become a bigger executive, especially as a female. But again, at the time, there was no social media, there was no platform for women or anyone to, to voice their complaints. It was just like, okay, yeah, this is pretty common. I had some like crazy experiences that would never fly today, you know? So it's been interesting to see these women speak up and and that things have changed and that, you know, there's a great deal of respect now. Do you think that women today, regardless of whether they're in the entertainment industry or not, feel more empowered to speak up and, and publicly accuse their attackers or assailants? I think there is certainly a movement and a platform for women to speak up. And, you know, they... Of course, they deserve to be heard and, and listened to. There just wasn't there just wasn't that years and years ago when I think a lot of this was like more prolific. So then how did you make the decision to leave the entertainment industry and go back to uh, to school? Well, I was, you know, at that point, I was working for a movie producer that was a terrible boss and my life was essentially falling apart. And so I, you know, I had this very sobering moment that if I stayed in the entertainment industry, I probably wasn't going to have a a happy, fulfilled life. And it was going to continue to kind of go down this dark path. And so I made a very, very strong decision and 
a strong and I guess rash decision. One day I was like, I'm done. I'm done with this industry. I'm no longer going to put up with this type of behavior. And I quit my job and I went back to school to become a dietitian. I had always loved nutrition. It was something that fueled my passion and purpose in life. And so I was like, why not go back to school and do this? So I took on a ton of student loans, but it was hundred percent worth it. And what do you think it was that attracted you to the field of uh, dietitian? I have always loved learning about food and the human body and how food affects, you know, our entire livelihood. And so I was like, I, I really wanted to dig in deeper. I mean, I would read everything about I could about food, nutrition, health, every magazine that was out there, all the books. And I was like, actually, I want to like, make a career and profession out of this. And so decided to just like throw all caution into the wind and much to my parents' advice. I mean, they're like, don't go back to school. It's going to be so expensive. But I was like, no, I have to make a huge change in my life. And so that was the best path for me. Do you think that doctors and traditional Western medicine are as appreciative of the importance of diet and nutrition as they should be? No. Definitely not. I mean, if you if you look at the the schooling of a medical doctor that practices, you know, in the Western world, they go to like one hour of nutrition for their entire medical training. And so, no, I don't think they most doctors appreciate or understand the importance of plant medicine and food as nutrition, which you know I find very frustrating. Now, what do you think is driving that dislocation? Pharmaceutical companies, 100%. I think pharmaceutical companies are the one that are making the decisions for doctors on what they prescribe and what patients should be advised and how they should approach their health. And it's typically not looking at plants as medicine. It's like, well, here's medicine to help placate or fix some sort of ailment you have that could be addressed looking much deeper and not just surface level. You know, it can be really disheartening for me too, to see how, how just the whole pharmaceutical industry is set up to your point. And it's, it's sad because I think a lot of the people who are working for these pharmaceutical companies really are altruistic and go into it with the desire to heal people, to help people. But then when you look at, look behind the scenes at the dollars and cents behind it and how much, how many hundreds of millions of dollars it takes to approve a drug through the FDA process, yet at the same time, we've made it illegal and still in the vast majority of states to smoke cannabis, which has proven to be highly beneficial for people all around the world. It just, it, it just seems like such a ludicrous structure that we've put together. I mean, I totally agree with you. It is, it's beyond confusing and frustrating. And I just feel there are that it's making our human race sicker than they actually are. I think, you know, a great example of that is even in the CBD industry, right, where we've seen that Epidiolex was the first CBD-related pharmaceutical to be approved. And even though that drug is only able to be prescribed to a very small portion of the population who suffer from a specific form of epilepsy, GW Pharma is generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue each year, yet while at the same time, CBD being used in nutraceutical products has effectively been halted because the FDA won't issue guidance on that side of the industry. I know. And it, it seems, I don't know if it's like continuing to 
be paid, quote unquote, paid off by the pharmaceutical companies, because will CBD and THC start to eliminate the need for X, Y, and Z pharmas? Probably. And so, you know, they still are, I think, strangled by what pharmaceutical companies and the money associated with that. But I mean, the fact that we cannot get guidance on CBD and the efficacy of it with many different medical conditions is is so frustrating. And I think it just speaks to, you know, where we are as like a human race and why money <laughs> we're fueled by money. So on a more on a brighter note, what are some of the <laughs> what are some of the emerging holistic modalities or therapies or medicines that get you excited? There are so many. Interestingly enough, I went through a terrible illness last year in 2021. And, you know, I really shunned the guidance of Western doctors because their immediate response to me was like, well, take this pill and you'll be fine. And I was just like not willing to do that because it was simply just like putting a bandaid on the issue and not actually like finding the fundamental reason and cause of the illness and solving that to become healthier. And so I was able to explore so many different naturopathic modalities, a few being therapeutic ozone treatments, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, obviously like nutraceutical IVs, which I think made a huge difference, physical therapy, you know, which I think is widely used, but ozone therapy, hyperbaric oxygen therapy really, really changed the course of my treatment and also moved me to, you know, I'm hundred percent healed. Wow. That's awesome. Could you expand on what ozone therapy and hyperbaric oxygen treatment is? is that right? Yeah. Hyperbaric, hyperbaric. hyperbaric. Um, yeah. Well, so ozone therapy takes ozone gas. So O3, so you produce ozone through oxygen. And so what that does is it causes this, this reaction within the body that starts to further stimulate cells. And so ozone therapy is essentially used to decrease inflammation, increase cell regeneration, increase energy. So it's getting, it's, you know, killing off bad viruses, bacteria, any sort of pathogen in the body and actually oxygenating your cells. And so what I was dealing with was a tremendous amount of inflammation, which caused this thing called vestibular neuritis, which you end up with insane dizziness. And And the fundamental cause of that is inflammation. And so what ozone therapy did was it actually started to heal and rejuvenate nerves, ligaments, tendons, but mostly nerves and soft tissue and help to decrease the inflammation in that. So by that, the dizziness started to go away. Ozone is an incredible tool for many sort of modalities and it essentially saved my life. So I love ozone therapy. You can use it. You can get it into your ears. You can do breathing treatments. You can get it infused into your blood. It's an incredible, very powerful treatment. And then hyperbaric oxygen therapy is when you sit in this kind of giant pod. And what they do is they put you under four PSI of pressure and you breathe pure oxygen during it. And and what that does is it forces oxygen into the plasma of your body. So it actually stimulates an incredible healing response almost immediately. And, and that allows your body to like speed up that healing process. So what I had was this residual pain and damage in my head and in my ears from um, all the inflammation 
from the neuritis. And so what that did is it healed all of those nerves. And so it was an incredible tool for me. And are these treatments widely available? Like are, are there special clinics you have to do? Does insurance typically cover them? Definitely. They are very specific to naturopathy. So you're going to have to find a doctor that understands ozone that typically is not your regular medical doctor. You know, it's kind of an outlying therapy. And so you have to dig deep to to find doctors that use ozone therapy. My father-in-law is a naturopathic doctor and uses it predominantly in his practice and has, you know, saved hundreds and hundreds of lives and helped many individuals. But with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, there's plenty of providers um, that have these big chambers that you can get into. You just want to make sure you're working with someone that has a good reputation. But yeah, I mean, they, they're starting to become more widely available, but you know, it's not as easy as taking a pill. It costs money, insurance doesn't cover it. So you have to really find the means to ensure that this is the right path for you. And so as we talk about insurance, I think that's been an issue for a lot of folks who believe in holistic medicine is that most modalities are not covered by insurance. And so I'm curious, do do you see that trend changing? Do you think that's related to these therapies being just newer and, and not as heavily researched? Or could there even be more systemic issues related to the entanglement between pharmaceutical and insurance companies? I think there's definitely a fundamental issue with the entanglement of insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies as as predominant issue here. Do I see it changing? I don't know. I mean, we have great insurance here at Willow and acupuncture is not even covered under it, which seems so basic to me Mm -hmm. in terms of like Eastern medicine treatment. I hope down the road, insurance providers will see the value of this. But again, I think it's all driven by the pocketbooks of pharmaceutical companies. And when it was interesting during COVID, the FDA started shutting down doctors that were using ozone as a way to help with COVID symptoms because it was an amazing, it was amazing treatment for COVID symptoms. The FDA was actually shutting down doctors across the country that were using ozone to help their patients through COVID. So, I mean, just there you you see like, a lot, a lot of conflict. And this is a really important point you bring up and, and certainly a sensitive issue for a lot of people. But to me, it seems like there's been pretty widespread, for lack of a better word, censorship against anyone who's even discussing alternative treatments for COVID or arguing not that vaccines don't work or anything like that, but rather that there's just more efficacious, less invasive, less costly treatments. Yet, we're seeing more and more anyone who says that kind of thing is getting shut down with the claims that they're spreading medical misinformation. So I'm, I'm curious to get your read on that, uh, that whole situation. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, that I think doctors that were using different modalities to treat COVID were definitely getting censored and shut down. I mean, vitamin C was hard to come by. NAC was hard to come by. A bunch of different supplements that actually help decrease inflammation were all of a sudden being taken off the market. Alpha lipoic acid, great supplement to decrease inflammation. All of a sudden it was gone. Like you couldn't compound that. So it was, it was insane to see what was happening. And the FDA was actually like taking these things off the market that were very, very, that have been proven to show, okay, well, this is helping with inflammation. And I think, you know, and I, well, I believe inflammation is one of the worst, 
I, I would say inflammation is the precursor to many, many diseases. And the fact that like, we weren't addressing inflammation at the core, and there wasn't the ability to do that, I mean, I think really speaks to where we are as a, as a human race in terms of like our health. And you mentioned that your father-in-law is a naturopathic doctor. What does that mean? So it means that, I mean, he, he works with he works with everything but pharmaceuticals. So he uses all these different types of natural modalities, plant medicine, supplements, ozone therapy, vitamin IVs to help address and cure the underlying symptom rather than putting a bandaid on top and saying like, well, take this medicine and you'll feel better. He really gets to the core of the issue and he does that with all of these different wonderful treatment methods. And you think about even today, I think folks of, of our generation who have grown up in this society of Western medicine and the industry built around the pharmaceuticals still tend to be skeptical of holistic or naturopathic medicine. And so I have to imagine that for your father-in-law's generation, that, that stigma is probably even more pronounced. So I'm curious, have you, has he had to deal with skepticism or ridicule from his peers by taking this approach to medicine? Absolutely. Ridicule from family, friends, everyone, because it's hard to understand. You know, it's hard to understand what we we don't know. And so it's easy to understand, well, here, let me take this pill to, you know, essentially abate the symptom that I have due to this underlying medical issue. It's hard to understand, well, wait, I actually need to treat the underlying medical issue to solve the problem and get healthier, but you have to dig deep and it's not instantaneous. And I think, you know, we are so used to instant access, instant success that these types of treatments, they take longer because you're healing from the inside out rather than like, okay, well, I'm just going to cover this up. Yeah, exactly. Like this, the society that we have, that's just so expectant of immediate results and take a pill and everything's fine. Not yeah. Actually, you know, make any actual lifestyle changes or anything like that. So what are some everyday thoughts for folks who can just, who are looking to reduce toxins and inflammations in their life at any kind of simple tr- tips and tricks that you'd recommend? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say first and foremost, you want to look at the food that you're consuming. You want to look at the ingredients in your food. What type of food is it? Is it highly processed? Is it highly preserved? I mean, the fresher, the better. You want to eat fresh fruits and vegetables, mostly organic, if you can get to those because they are not treated with a bunch of different chemicals. You want to eat, you know, high quality meats that, you know, didn't come from like a massive farm where they were feeding them antibiotics and like really terrible feed. You want to, you want to look at your, your boxed canned essentially preserved foods, crackers, cookies, all of that stuff. And, and look at those ingredients. And like, if you can't pronounce most of them, or you have no idea what they are, or the list is like 30, 30 ingredients long, maybe look towards something that's a little more natural. You know, I, 
I'm finding that we're seeing huge rates of inflammation due to gluten, dairy, artificial flavors, artificial colors. I mean, those things are what causes inflammation within our cells. And so you have to just be very careful about what you're putting in your body. I also think we don't drink enough water. Water is uh, the, the foundation of our cells and our body. And so like drinking more water. And then I also believe that, you know, there's, there's certainly a pathway and a necessity for supplements, but not all supplements are made equal. So it's really important to understand that you're getting a high quality supplement that has been third party tested. Usually you want to look for the USP, it's United States Pharmacopeia symbol that tells you, okay, this has been tested by a third party lab. And what it says is in it is actually in it because most of the supplements on the shelf are, it's literally just expensive pee. That's what my, my dietetic teachers always talked about, but there are definitely wonderful high quality supplements out there, especially now that you can find. So, I mean, first and foremost, it's really digging into your diet and, and seeing, you know, what is causing inflammatory responses and then extracurricular activities like drinking and, you know, all the things that people do. It's like everything in moderation. Hard to hard, easy to say, hard to actually, you know, do it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Especially when, you know, you're just used to drinking alcohol or smoking cigarettes or whatever the habit may be. It's just, you know, breaking those habits is, is often difficult. And and as you talked about plant medicines, we'd love to hear about what your journey has been with cannabis from a personal perspective. And then maybe uh, it'd be helpful to dive in a little bit further to what you guys are doing at Willow and what a kill step is. Yeah, I have always, I've always loved cannabis personally. I think it's been, you know, something um, that's helped me manage anxiety and emotional modulations. It's helped kind of like bring out the best part of me. And I actually see that in cannabis. I see like the fundamental person that you are, cannabis accelerates that and accentuates that. So like I am happy, you know, I'm a happy fairly easy go lucky person. And I feel like cannabis really accentuates that. And so it's always been something that I've leaned on for times of, you know, hard times. And, and for me now, it's actually my personal preference over alcohol. When I got really sick, you know, I've always like drank a lot over the course of my adult life. And when I got really sick, I realized alcohol made my inflammation a hundred times worse. And I got so much sicker when I drank alcohol and just realized, well, maybe this actually isn't something good for me. So I had this very interesting dependency on alcohol for a really long time. And this being very sick made me see like how hard that was for me. So I've definitely taken a step back from alcohol. I'll have a drink here and there, but most of the time I consume cannabis. And so it's been interesting being in the business of cannabis, just how the industry has evolved over the past, you know, six, six and a half years that I've been part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that certainly resonates with with my story too. I, I gave up drinking in January of last year and Cannabis was very helpful for kicking that habit, although I've certainly recognized to your point about everything in moderation that my consumption of cannabis increased and, you know, I had <laughs> to scale that back. I've been, I haven't been quite as successful as I was on the alcohol front, um, but overall- But good for I, you. But you. good for you for being able to cut and like you've been, you've done it for over a year. Like, how has that made you feel? Oh, just so much better. Just less social anxiety, higher quality sleep. You know, I feel like my 
weekends are night and day different in that I, I can actually use those times to be productive and, and get a lot of interesting, fun, kind of creative work like this kind of thing, right? Like, with, I don't think I would have had the time, frankly, to do Entangled if I was still hungover and feeling like crap every weekend. I totally, I totally agree with you. It certainly opened up a life that I didn't realize I didn't have. And it's, it's been amazing, but it's also been amazing to not feel like constricted by needing, wanting alcohol. I definitely felt controlled by it for so long. And now like to be kind of released from that, it's really freeing. It really is. And, and it's interesting because it's one of those things that at least I didn't recognize how significant of an impact it had on my life until I got rid of it. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd love to get your thoughts as we think about the history of the war on drugs and our culture today. Like why? Why is it that we have a society that is okay with certain altered states of consciousness like alcohol and heavy, you know, opiates and SSRIs prescribed by pharmaceuticals, yet that still continues to demonize cannabis and psychedelics and, and other medicines? I mean, that is a great question, Jordan. I just, you know, I'm reading this book called Quit Like a Woman. And it's all about alcohol and the the big bucks behind alcohol and why we're so conditioned to think alcohol is like the greatest thing on earth. And like, you know, there's all this happiness and, and prettiness associated with it. But like, if you get down into the fundamental of what alcohol is, it's just like absolutely terrible. And so I, I, I don't know. I don't know why we have continued to lift up alcohol, but we cannot also like lift up a plant that has been known to help people for centuries. I think it's all due to money. What do you think about the direction the cannabis industry is growing, right? In the sense that one of the concerns I know the early advocates had was that just like every other industry would be eventually taken over by the big CPGs and the pharmaceutical companies. And you're certainly seeing that on the psychedelic side with groups like Compass Pathways looking to patent psilocybin and that kind of thing. So I'm curious how we can navigate legalizing substances that never should have been made illegal in the first place, yet not continuing to perpetuate the system where we have this broken paradigm heavily relying on the pharmaceutical industries. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. And it's been interesting to see how the states have regulated cannabis over the years in such a siloed format. You know, I, I feel like the FDA is so reticent to, to legalize this because then they're just going to be in conflict with the big pharmaceutical companies. But if like there gets to be a pathway for pharmaceuticals to get into cannabis, then I just, I I get concerned that it's going to look very similar to what pharmaceuticals look like today. So I don't know. I mean, I really hope the the FDA holds strong and, and starts to build a pathway for legalization in what looks like how we have legalized it state by state. And that there's still this very specialness to the industry, but that we're still still looking towards a greater expansion. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard to say. I mean, uh, what do you think? Especially like comparing it to like where psychedelics are going. Yeah. I, uh, I'm optimistic that in a lot of ways, because it's been a state by state thing and because these big pharmaceutical companies have been effectively restricted by its federal illegality that there will be 
more of a moat around these substances, around the companies that are being built today to really continue working in the best interests of the end consumer. But at the end of the day, I think we're eyes wide open that as federal legalization opens up, the companies out there leading the industry today are going to be targets for Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Pfizer and Moderna. So it's it's tough. It, I, you know, I could, I could see it going a lot of ways and hopefully, you know, you and I and other thought leaders in the industry can help to drive that in a more favorable, consumer-friendly direction. Agreed. Well said. <laughs> what do you think about psychedelics? I think it's amazing. I, I mean, I think it's amazing that they're being explored for the, the very the very intense mental health issues that we are dealing with today. Like how exciting. I, I think it's amazing. And I'm so excited about it because it, it really like flips the opioid crisis on its head, hopefully, you know, moving into the future, but there's so much possibility. And if we're actually truly addressing the mental health crisis, then thank God. Yeah. Why do you think that the mental health crisis has gotten so much worse in in recent years. And maybe it hasn't gotten worse. It's just become more front and center in people's consciousness. But I'm just curious what what you attribute that to. I think it's social media. I think social media is the underlying beast of our mental mental health issues Mm -hmm. as a country and as a human race. The the need to like keep up with everybody and the image that we put out on social media versus what's actually the truth is, is so different. And so I feel like it's this constant comparison, like you're not good enough. You're not, you're not doing this enough. You're not, you're not traveling enough. You don't look like this. You think you aren't this. And so it, I think it feeds into our innate inability to like not be insecure. Yeah. Do you know who Jay Shetty is? No, no, I don't think so. Really interesting guy. So he, um, it's a British, uh, British guy of um, Indian descent. And he, you know, grew up in London in the materialist Western society, decided to go be a monk for several years in India, and then decided to actually leave that path to come back and, and really start bringing his the philosophies of Eastern spirituality to the modern society. And so wrote a book called Think Like a Monk and started a podcast called On Purpose. And anyway, he has this quote that I really love. That's something like something to the effect of, we spend our lives concerned about the way we think other people think we think we are. (laughs) And, and, you know, that, that whole idea. I love that. Yeah. I mean, but that's so true. We that's we spend most of our day thinking about what other people think about us, when actually it like doesn't matter at all. Um, and you know, I I have an executive coach and have been you know in therapy on and off you know I think my whole life, and and that's something that we really have to like drill into. Yeah, yeah. And one thing I've certainly found in my yeah. own life is happiness you just can never be reliant on an external person or or party for your own validation right that has to come from within yeah absolutely and it's hard it's hard to stoke that flame and it's hard to understand it 
And I think for a long time, like I thought alcohol made me happy. I was like, oh my God, I'm so much happier when I'm drinking and like, oh, you know, this will be great because I'll be drinking and I'll be really fun and I'll be happy. And then realizing actually I felt the exact opposite when I actually really assessed and analyzed like how I felt in that moment. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I noticed the same for myself too. Like, and you know, I think a lot of folks like to drink because it helps them loosen up in a group setting and, and alleviate some social anxiety. But I find it's very much for me, at least a bit of like a, a bell curve where maybe one or two drinks helps to take the edge off. But then after that, I get way more in my head, way more anxious, like yeah. way more stressed about the evening and, and what I, what my actions are throughout the night. Totally. I, I definitely agree with that. So have you found other ways to cultivate fulfillment in your daily life? I have. I mean, I, you know, I, again, it's something I work on every single day. I I definitely am fulfilled and I'm very passionate about what we do at Willow and my role here at the company. I have a daughter who's five. And so I, a lot of my life is part of, you know, being around her and enjoying my time. But I also like, I, you know, I, I enjoy doing I enjoy reading and I enjoy exercising and I, I enjoy spending time with my friends. And so I really focus on those things because I think that there was way too long where I was so shallow about where happiness and fulfillment was coming from, i.e. alcohol and social media and just really negative shit. And so it's taken a while for me to turn that ideal and mindset and move towards, okay, like I'm happy just being. And like, can I be happy just being? And so I've gotten to the point is like, yeah, every day, you know, it's, you got to work on it, but I've gotten to the point where, yes, I'm happy just being. Would you consider yourself a spiritual person? A hundred percent. And so what does that mean to you? I mean, being spiritual means to me that this isn't this life that we're in right now. Isn't just it that there are, there's a greater being out there that is essentially like guiding us, energizing us, giving us tools and um, tips and visions and guides towards what we're doing in life. And if we actually see these little nuggets of, you know, insight the universe gives us and listen to it, I think, you know, we can move towards being much more fulfilled beings, but definitely spirituality is like something greater than who we are right now. Did you grow up religious or have, have your views on spirituality changed throughout your life? They definitely have changed. I was, I was raised as a Catholic. You know, my parents very much forced that upon me. I went to all of the, you know, I went to the Catholicism classes and I did my confirmation and, you know, that was, I went to church every Sunday and that was all pushed on me during my childhood and into, you know, my formative years of high school. And then I decided that I shunned all of that. It's like, that was not what I believed in or agreed with. Uh, the values of the Catholic church. And so I said no to that. Once I was out of the house and able to make those decisions on my own, much to my parents' behest, but you know, it's been much more fulfilling for me. Do you associate yourself with a specific religion now, or do you think about it more just as a, I don't know, I guess, is there a way that you would attempt to classify it? 
I think classifying it simply as I'm a very spiritual being. And I believe in a greater energy, but I believe, you know, the quote unquote universe has my back and I have guides and angels that look over me and watch me and give me guidance on where to go in life. I certainly like ask for the, I ask the universe for that and I get that back. See that when it comes my way. What do you think about death? Gosh, you know, for me, it's been so, that's such is like such a complicated question. I've been so scared of it for so long. I was scared of it my whole life up until, I don't know, maybe the, after I got very sick and I went through this moment where I was like, well, I guess I could die and then that's just it. And so I became less scared about death and more seeing as, it, as this is my path. And this is, you know, I don't believe like life ends at death. I think there are, you know, many other lives that we can lead. And so it gives me a lot of hope, but it also makes me less scared about it when it happens. But I also haven't dealt with it, dealt with it a lot in my life. Thankfully, knock on wood, whatever. You know, my uncle and my grandpa both committed suicide. So I've dealt with it on a very like shocking basis. But otherwise, like I haven't really dealt with it very dramatically. And so it's been hard for me to, to understand it for a long time. But I, I do feel I'm not as scared anymore. And I think that's like a big step. And what were those experiences like when, when your grandfather and uncle committed suicide? I think it's just, it's so, it's, the shock is so insane. And then you know, you're like, why, 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 why would they do this? Why would they leave us? But I, I felt this like intense sadness for them. I felt so sad that they were at the point that this was, this is, this was their only path. And like, what an awfully sad, scared place to be. And so I just, it was like this very intense darkness that I felt, but also like very sadness, very, so much sadness. And then, you know, you go through all those emotions, like, I'm so angry that you did this. But then you go back to like, it's just fundamentally sad that they were at that place. And it gets back to our discussion earlier about mental health and why it's great, at least that now, this is something that people are able to talk about more openly. I think people are starting to recognize the negative effects of social media, and hopefully psychedelics can be accessed by more and more people to help them deal with tough times that they may be going through. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic that societally we're, we're trending in the right direction. Yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. And so what do you, uh, what's next for you on the journey? I know obviously continue to, to grow Willow Industries and to an incredible business all across the country. But outside of that, what do you think is next for you on the journey? Gosh, that's such a good question. I'm so in the depths right now of running this company. We closed some funding most recently, which is very exciting. And so, you know, we're on like a supercharged growth path. So there's like more to do now than there ever has been. But I think for me, it's, it's, it's continuing to find purpose and passion in what I do at the office and outside of the office. And continuing to cultivate that because if you don't focus on it and you just kind of like let that go, I think the spiral downward can be very quick and swift. So, um, you know, I, 
I'm continuing to like further my personal development, my professional development with my coach and, um, you know, hopefully raise like a really good kid, like a really solid kid. I mean, that is certainly a focus of mine, (laughs) but I'm very excited about what we're doing and I feel very passionate and fulfilled. And I also think that being very sick and going through something like that, when, you know, you've always, I've always had my health. I've always been very healthy my whole life. And then all of a sudden you get leveled by an insane sickness that caught you off guard. That totally changes your perspective and it changes your, I think your purpose and your mission in life. And so for me, I look back and I'm like thankful, hundred percent thankful that it happened. I guess if you talked to me this time last year, when I was absolutely so sick, I would have told you to fuck off. But like right now I'm so thankful I went through that because like, it was a sobering experience, but I learned a lot. And I also learned the the power of the the healing of the human body. And that is, you know, what I'm, I'm thrilled to have learned. Like the human body will heal if you give it the right tools. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think it's so profound that you are able to look back with gratitude on that illness. And it really resonates with me and the whole idea of dark night of the soul that the universe sends us these experiences that in the time can feel like devastating, like the the worst thing imaginable. But in hindsight, you recognize that that part of the journey was necessary to get to that next stage, to level up to that next place of consciousness or, or however you want to phrase it. You're totally right. I mean, very well said. And it's interesting. I, I kept a journal of the time that I was sick and I'm, I, I can't go back and read it just yet because I feel, still think it's too raw, but I remember reiterating in every journal entry, like I will get better. I will get better. And there is a power in that, in the mantra of the positive thinking. And so I, I knew I would get better, but that I had to go, like you said so well, I had to go through this dark space to then come out and level up and really understand my passion and purpose. Well, Jill, I think that's, that's a great place to wrap things up. And, you know, I hope that your, your beautiful words help folks be inspired to find their own passion and purpose. And for people who are maybe going through a tough time or or an illness today that they can recognize that there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and you just got to have that conviction in, in your body's ability to heal and, and your ability to get through it. Absolutely. Thank you. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been a blast and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. It was so great. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. I really enjoyed our conversation. Good, deep questions. You know, it's <laughs> rare you. these days to get, you know, to dig deep. I love it. So thank yeah. you. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's, that's why I've just had so much fun doing this podcast. It's just, get, you know, convincing some of the folks, either the people I've known for quite some time or the people who I've gotten to know more recently, like you, that I've just found to be super interesting and having a forum to actually talk about the things that, you know, really matter to people as opposed to the more superficial stuff that we can get caught up in on the day-to-day basis. Yeah, totally. Thanks everyone for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Jill and I spent a lot of time talking about holistic medicine and some of the examples of how our healthcare system is broken. As I think about manifesting a future where we have a healthcare system instead of institutionalized sick care, it has become increasingly apparent to me that the executives of Big Pharma and our regulatory agencies have incentives that are completely misaligned with those of patients. I wanted to highlight two specific case studies to that effect. Number one, the history of the CBD molecule, and number two, the dangerous precedent of censorship framed as preventing vaccine hesitancy. First, the history of the CBD molecule. CBD, or cannabidiol, is one of the two main compounds found in cannabis alongside the psychoactive compound THC. Prior to the 1920s, pharmaceutical companies like Eli Lilly and Merck included cannabis in many of their medicines, and it was the third most common ingredient in patent medicine. However, in 1937, purchasing cannabis became prohibitively expensive with the passage of the Marijuana Tax Act. This implicit ban on cannabis became explicit in 1970 under the Controlled Substances Act, cutting off the usage of CBD, THC, and the entourage effect of full-spectrum cannabinoids for medicinal purposes for nearly 50 years. The history and motivation behind passing both of these laws is outside the scope of this discussion, but suffices to say that the motivating factors for both the Tax Act and the CSA had nothing to do with concerns of medical efficacy and everything to do with politically, racially, and economically motivated reasons for banning the substance. In 2018, it felt like a major milestone had been passed when the 2018 Farm Bill legalized hemp and hemp-derived CBD nationally. The distinction between hemp, which is defined as cannabis strains with less than 0.3% THC, and marijuana is a relatively arbitrary one, not grounded in science. But nonetheless, the achievement felt like a major step forward towards the end of the war on drugs. However, over three years after the passage of the Farm Bill, the FDA has approved only one CBD product, Epidiolex. Further, the FDA has not provided any guidance for companies looking to include CBD in orally administered supplements. Despite the fact that various studies have shown CBD can help with afflictions including anxiety, insomnia, chronic pain, and addiction, the FDA has explained that its delay in issuing regulations on CBD is necessary to investigate the side effects of CBD. However, they fail to acknowledge the reason for the lack of medical research on the substance is due to its 50-year inclusion as a Schedule I substance, because this classification made it nearly impossible for any research institution to study the molecule. This lack of FDA guidance has put significant downward pressure on the development of the CBD nutraceuticals industry, as CPG companies and investors are reluctant to deploy capital into the sector until they understand what claims can be made and how to practically build a brand in the space. In the meantime, Millions of patients who could benefit from the usage of CBD suffer without practical support in knowing which products are appropriate for the respective ailments. Yet over these past several years, sales of that one FDA-approved medicine, Epidiolex, have skyrocketed. Epidiolex is a pharmaceutical developed by GW Pharmaceutical, which was subsequently acquired by Jazz Pharmaceuticals for $7.2 billion. Sales of Epidiolex started in 2018, and in 2020, the drug generated over $510 million in revenues for GW Pharma. Epidiolex drove this fantastic amount of revenues despite the fact that it is only approved for the treatment of rare seizures associated with three rare disorders, which affect 50,000 people in the U.S. and a total of 1 million people worldwide. Through the third quarter of 19, Epidiolex had been prescribed to approximately 15,000 people, and that implies GW Pharma was making approximately $12,500 per patient on the drug. 
So in summary, what has the U.S. government, our regulatory bodies, and private pharmaceutical done with the CBD molecule? We took a plant that is cheap and sustainable to grow, hemp, and that was used for a wide host of ailments for millennia. We then made that plant cost-prohibitive and then outright illegal for close to 100 years on reasons that had no grounding in medical science. When we finally got around to making a slight correction towards this injustice by passing the 2018 Farm Bill, a regulatory agency supposedly responsible for protecting patient health refused to issue guidance on how CBD-branded companies can market the effects of their dietary supplements. In the meantime, one corporate enterprise has made hundreds of millions of dollars off of the molecule and selling it to a small population at exorbitant prices. And there you start to see how we've built a complicated, for-profit, quote-unquote, healthcare industry that benefits the few at the expense of the many. Number two, the dangerous precedent of censorship framed as preventing vaccine hesitancy. So then we get into the newer and potentially even more dangerous trend of free speech censorship under the guise of preventing medical misinformation. I'll be focusing this section on the story of Dr. Robert Malone and his recent appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast, but I want to highlight that this trend of censorship is not restricted to Dr. Malone. The incidence of deplatforming and free speech censorship has skyrocketed since the start of the pandemic, and the victims are not the anti-vaxxer lunatics they're portrayed to be in the mainstream media. I urge everyone to get educated on this subject because once we allow the scourge of censorship to infest our open dialogue, we enable it to spread rapidly and encroach on more and more facets of society. Said otherwise, Big Brother is only able to take over if we allow him. As you may be aware, Dr. Malone was interviewed by Joe Rogan for an episode that aired December 31st and immediately drew harsh criticism for the thought crime of encouraging vaccine hesitancy. In the aftermath of the interview, it was widely reported that music performers like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell had boycotted Spotify, pushing the platform to take action against Rogan and this misinformation. It was also widely reported in the legacy media that a group of 270 medical professionals had signed a letter calling on Spotify to take action against Rogan. What has been less widely reported is that Dr. Malone is the president of the International Alliance of Physicians and Scientists, an organization of over 17,000 medical professionals. The alliance is pushing Congress to declare the COVID national emergency over and to restore constitutional democracy by ending the emergency powers granted for COVID. Dr. Malone himself is one of the most important developers of mRNA vaccine technology, having worked on their development while at the Molecular Biology and Virology Labs at the Salk Institute in the 1980s and 1990s. Dr. Malone spent the last 20 years working in regulatory affairs, clinical development, and completing a fellowship at Harvard University Medical School. All this is to say that if we're going to vilify and censor Dr. Malone for raising concerns about vaccine mandates, then who is possibly qualified to question the official narrative published by the FDA and the CDC? As it should be clear from Dr. Malone's background, He is absolutely not someone who could be dismissively labeled as anti-vaxxer. This invective has been used as an effective tool to silence critics of FDA and CDC policy and those who allege government and pharmaceutical corruption without actually listening to their arguments. Rather, Dr. Malone has raised concerns over universal vaccine mandates despite evidence that vaccines can do more harm than benefit in certain populations, including children. Further, he has highlighted the use of deplatforming, ridicule, and the threat of loss of medical licenses to anyone discussing the risks associated with vaccines as a clear violation of bioethics. That this censorship under the guise of increasing vaccine hesitancy is an incredibly slippery slope. 
These are huge issues that need to be taken seriously. Some of the specific quotes from Dr. Malone's Rogan interview that were particularly resonant for me included the following. Number one, my position all the way through this comes off of the platform of bioethics and the importance of informed consent. So my position is that people should have the freedom of choice, particularly for their children. To appropriately choose to participate in a medical experiment, they have to be fully informed of the risks as well as the benefits. The policy that's being implemented is one in which no discussion of the risks are allowed because, by definition, they will elicit vaccine hesitance. So informed consent is not only not happening, it's being actively blocked. Our government is out of control on this, and they are lawless. They completely disregard bioethics. They completely disregard the federal common rule. They have broken all the rules that I know of that I've been trained on for years and years and years. These mandates of an experimental vaccine are explicitly illegal. They are explicitly inconsistent with the Nuremberg Code. They're explicitly inconsistent with the Belmont Report. They are flat out illegal and they don't care. Number two, there are good modeling studies that probably half a million excess deaths have happened in the United States through the intentional blockade of early treatment, including administration of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine by the U.S. government. It is bizarre that Merck would come out with these explicit statements about the safety of ivermectin. Both ivermectin and hydroxy are on the list of essential medicines. They have been administered for millions and millions of doses. They're among the safest medicines we know when administered within the acceptable pharmaceutical window. And I'd note that for point of reference, there's not much money in manufacturing ivermectin because it's a generic drug that can be made by any compound pharmacy and in bulk, you can produce it for less than a penny a dose. On the other hand, Pfizer to date has received over 17 billion of taxpayer money from the U.S. government for its COVID-19 vaccine. Number three, Rick Bright, the head of BARDA, the biomedical advanced research group that funded the J&J vaccine and Operation Warp Speed, was videotaped explicitly speaking about how they conspired to cook up a strategy using emergency youth authorization to make it so that hydroxychloroquine could only be administered in the hospital, which, by the way, is too late for when hydroxy should be used. Number four, I was deplatformed from LinkedIn for posting that the former president and CEO of Thomson Reuters and now the current chairman of the Thomson Reuters Foundation, James Smith, also sits on the board of Pfizer and simply asking, does this look like a conflict of interest to you? And I would note that Thomson Reuters is a $50 billion media conglomerate that has also been hired by Twitter as their fact-checking partner to fight the spread of misinformation. Number five. There was a decision by the Trusted News Initiative, an international media and high-tech organization led by the BBC, to resisting vaccine misinformation and disinformation. They defined these things as anything which was going to lead to vaccine hesitancy and which was contrary to the official statements of the World Health Organization or their respective national health organizations. So whatever the CDC or Tony Fauci, etc. says is truth by definition and any information or discussion which is contrary to that tooth will be suppressed. It will be deleted. Number six, Pfizer is one of the most criminal pharmaceutical organizations in the world based on their past legal history and fines. What do those fines include? Bribing physicians. Okay, it is a cost-benefit analysis in the pharmaceutical industry about misbehavior. They are not grounded in the ethical principles that you and I as the average people believe in. They don't live in that world. They're about profit, return on investment. And furthermore, the overlords that own them, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, etc., these large massive funds that are completely decoupled from nation states have no moral core. 
They have no moral purpose. Their only purpose is return on investment. And that is the core problem here. That and the fact that we as a society have become grossly fragmented through social media, electronic appliances, and the stress of what we've experienced. Shortly after the episode aired, a compilation video surfaced of Joe Rogan using the N-word 24 times across 12 years of the podcast. I in no way condone Rogan's use of this word, and I'm glad he apologized for his inappropriate language. But to me, the more important issue is that we keep seeing the established powers leveraging the woke movement and cancel culture to suppress the voices of anyone who speaks truth to power. And the timing of this Rogan video coming out relative to the airing of the Malone interview looks to me to be anything but pure coincidence. The discussion on the COVID-19 vaccine and the emergency protocols issued to deal with it is a complicated, nuanced discussion. By no means am I implying that Dr. Malone has a monopoly on truth. Rather, my point is that his opinion, at the very least, deserves to be included in the conversation. That we the people have a right to hearing the potential benefits and potential risks of every medicine we choose to put into our bodies, without which we cannot possibly provide informed consent. That we have a right to voice allegations of government corruption and to discuss the evidence supporting those allegations without fear of censorship and career destruction. We the people are intelligent enough to make informed decisions about what is the best direction to choose with the sovereignty of our own bodies. We don't need the media establishment with their clear conflicts of interest tied to the pharmaceutical industry, filtering that information and telling us what to do and how to behave. If we continue this trend of vilifying and canceling anyone who speaks truth to power, pretty soon we'll have a power structure that has full dominion on what is truth. This is not hyperbole or or scare tactics. Censorship is happening all around us, and the suppression of free speech is a dangerous, potentially irreversible trend. It's time we wake up, take notice, and commit to open dialogue while we still can. Running through the lights of my thoughts Standing on the edge of my child
Everything 